5, where Paul says in chapter 1, whereof I am made a minister. And I want to title this message, Four Reasons Why You Were Called to Minister. Now, if you look at the text, you may think I missed it, and in some ways I did. Paul is referring to his own ministry. Paul is looking at reasons why he ministers and what God called him to do in ministry, but he uses a word that is applied often to the church of God, diakonos, other times diakoneo, which we get the word deacon and the word service. And so Paul has been made a servant of Jesus Christ, and his service is in the official capacity of an apostle. He has apostolic authority. He has apostolic inspiration, unlike no one else has today. But you and I have been called to serve and to minister. And you can find this Greek word applied in many places to us in the Bible. So what we're going to do is look at the four reasons Paul was called to ministry, and we'll see where we're able to apply that in a different capacity, yet in our ministry in the church to one another today. So we'll start in verse 24. Paul says, whereof, pointing back to verse 24, where he says, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind or lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh, which is his body, for his body's sake, which he defines as the church. And then verse 25, he says, whereof I am made a minister. So he's made a minister to fulfill this reason. What is it? He is called to fill up, to supply that which is lacking or missing in the afflictions of Christ. So we want to answer the question, what is missing about Christ's afflictions? Number one, and how does Paul supply what is lacking? But first note, Paul is rather a strange breed, isn't he? Who do you know that talks like this? Who do you know that thinks like this? I now rejoice in my suffering on your behalf. Paul's in prison. Colossians 4 tells us he's in bonds because of the gospel. And it's that gospel he's preaching to the Roman world. And that's why he's in prison. It's for the church to bring them the message of the gospel and to fulfill the word of God as he says here. Paul doesn't say, I'm rejoicing and suffering for a wife, his children, his parents, even his cousins, or a close friend. He rejoices in suffering for people he's never even met. He's never been to Colossae. Could that be said of us today? Do you ever find any joy at all, in suffering on behalf of someone else. Most of the time in our sufferings, we're tempted to think of God like the postal service, where you get a package and the wrong address is on it. And we gladly write in the correct address, put it back in the mailbox, and want it shipped down the street to the neighbor. That's often how we're tempted to think of suffering. Why me? Why does this have to happen now? as if there's really a good time on my calendar for me to suffer. 
Uh, and then we, we are tempted to think God has reached the wrong address. For some reason, this shouldn't be happening to me. Or we're tempted to question. Maybe the thought has crossed your mind. Is it really worth it? Is this ministering, Paul could say, is my ministry, is this service really worth it? Seeing the suffering that Paul did and even some of the sufferings and trials we go through. I was talking to a man recently in his 80s whose wife is suffering from Alzheimer's. And he said with, to me in tears as I tried to encourage him, he said, I just don't understand all those years of service and now she doesn't even know who I am. What was he tempted to think? That really if all this service is going to bring about this, is it really, really worth it? Surely at some point in your life you've had that thought. As if we serve God and that's going to equate to pleasant days and good things on the planet. And then we're tempted to see others with their lands in gold, literally, or maybe their golden relationships that they have where it seems that all is working as it should be relationally. And you, on the other hand, are struggling through difficult relationships and you're in a season of great stress and trial. And it tempts us then to get distracted and to try to numb ourselves with fleeting, temporary pleasures, activities, and entertainment. And then slowly, what happens? We leave off spiritual disciplines and habits that were once in place, and now they're gone. Why? Because we don't see the deeper meaning that Paul could see about suffering as it relates to the body and how Paul was able to rejoice in it, not because it was painful, but because of the impact and the effect his ministry was having when he was bringing the message of the gospel to the people of God, even though it meant imprisonment. And he's in prison when he records this letter. So, what is it about Paul's ministry that he is rejoicing for them over? He says, to fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh. So, Paul's suffering is in some way supplying what is missing in the afflictions of Christ, for which we ask, what on earth could be missing? So, what is not missing is any redemptive value in the afflictions and suffering of Christ. We've already noted in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption has been accomplished. The entire life and ministry of Christ, from His afflictions to His suffering, whether in ministry or on the cross, redemption has been accomplished. Colossians 2.13, you have been forgiven all trespasses. All of them. Romans 3.24, in whom we have redemption, we have it through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. That is by grace through His blood. We have been forgiven all trespasses. We are in Christ. We're united to Christ by faith. Therefore, there is no way that Paul's afflictions could contribute to the meritorious value of the afflictions of Christ. Some people erroneously think so. But this is not what Paul is saying. So the question is, what is then being supplied that is missing? And what is missing? 
and the afflictions of Christ. There's two passages that I think help us understand this where the same idea is presented. The first one is 1 Corinthians 16, 17. Three men make their way to Paul from the church at Corinth, and they're going to bring questions to Paul by the church, in which Paul will answer when he sends that first letter back, presumably by these three men. He would say in this verse, I am glad of the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achippus, I think is the name or how you pronounce it. For they have supplied that which was lacking on your part. So whatever was lacking, whatever was missing on behalf of the church at Corinth, these three men brought and supplied to Paul. What was it? Verse 18. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. So what Paul is saying, what was lacking is that the church of Corinth could not be present where Paul was to refresh his soul. So messengers, or these three men, were sent on behalf of the church and they made a personal presentation and communicated on behalf of the church to Paul. And Paul answers and says, because they have refreshed my spirit, which you were not able to do. The whole church was not able to get on a ship or make it to where Paul was. So they personally presented through these three men what was missing. Service. Refreshing. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul speaks of a man named Epaphroditus. The church sent him as a messenger to minister or serve to Paul's wants in prison. So Paul had physical needs and wants. They send this supply to meet his need by a man named Epaphroditus. When he gets there, which was a long trip from Philippi to Rome, where Paul is, he falls sick. The church at Philippi hears about his sickness and is so concerned that Paul wants to alleviate their concern for him, so he sends Epaphroditus back to them. In verse 29 of chapter 2 of the Philippian letter, Paul says, Receive him therefore, that is Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death. The work of Christ in ministering, he got sick and was very close to death. Not regarding his life in his service, he didn't value his own life above the service of Christ. And what did he do? To supply your lack of service toward me. Now, every person at Philippi so loved Paul that they would have loved to be with Paul in his presence to supply personally whatever Paul needed. But they couldn't. So Paul says, what's missing in your service is you. You were not able to be here. You were not able to make the trip. So Epaphroditus, he supplied what was missing in your service, which was a personal presentation of what was meeting Paul's needs. Likewise, in Colossians 1.24, through Paul's suffering, he is supplying what is missing in the afflictions of Christ because Christ is no longer on the earth to personally present something about his own afflictions. He's not here to personally put on display something to communicate something about his own afflictions. In business, personal presentation is a communication skill whereby a person portrays to others 
something about who they are, the way they dress, the way they communicate, their mannerisms. So Paul is saying there's something about his suffering for them that is going to communicate, it's going to embody, it's going to incarnate Christ. Because Christ is no longer here to show something about his afflictions. And it's more than just the affliction itself, isn't it? There are men on the planet that suffer who are unbelievers and they do not incarnate Christ. They do not embody something about the afflictions of Christ. But Paul says part of the purpose of his ministry in taking the gospel to the churches is in his sufferings to embody, to supply what is missing in the afflictions of Christ. And what did Paul personally display and embody in his afflictions? Two things. The first thing is love. I am rejoicing in my suffering for you. Jesus Christ in all his afflictions. What was the point? It was for you that he was being afflicted. It was his love for God and his love for you that was being put on display in all of his afflictions. In John 13... Verse 34, Jesus would say to His apostles, This is My commandment. This is a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Even so do you. This is My commandment, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you're My disciples, when you have love one for another. So in your love one for another, the apostles first, the world is going to see that love and they're going to connect it with Christ and their love is going to embody or to incarnate Christ's love after He's left the earth. Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk in love as God has loved us in Christ and Christ has given Himself for us a sweet-smelling savour and a sacrifice to God. Now, the giving of his life was not just at the moment of death. It was in all his afflictions. He was giving himself to you. In all of his service, it was all for the glory of God and on behalf of his people because he loves you. So when we look at the afflictions of Christ, we don't just see the afflictions. His poverty was for you. The slander against him was on your behalf. The misunderstanding, the strokes on his back, all was for your redemption and it was all communicating his love for God and his love for you. When Paul now rejoices in his sufferings for the church, he is embodying, he is incarnating Christ and he's showing love. When? When he suffers. God expects us, by His grace, even in trials and difficulties, to keep loving. And at that moment, perhaps, unlike any other time, do we display and incarnate and embody the love of Christ in our afflictions and in our suffering. So the first thing is love. And Paul says it was for you. The second thing, obviously, is His rejoicing. It's one thing to love but to find gladness in your sufferings because it's being used in the love of others. 
We see this also in Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. When the writer says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God on high. So Jesus, moving through the cross to glory, has joy set before him. What is the source of his joy? Well, John 17 tells us two things in his high priestly prayer. One is, he prays that the glory he had with the Father before the world was, that he would be restored to that glory. The pre-incarnate Christ always had fellowship, joy in the love of God the Father in the Trinity. Now God, the man, the God-man, will be brought up into that glory and experience what? The love and joy that's produced from The love of being in the presence of God the Father by resurrection. So the joy he's got before him is the love and the delight of God that produces that joy. And those two are connected. But then in John 17, 24, there's also the joy of having his bride with him. O Father, I will that those whom thou hast given me, that's the bride that was chosen for the Son, be with me where I am that... My bride implied, the bride you gave me, may behold or see my glory. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. What's the joy set before Christ? It's to have his bride there. He came from heaven and sought her to be his holy bride, his only bride. With his own own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Why did he die for her? Because he loves the bride that the Father chose and gave to him. So the joy that's set before him is the love and the joy and the light of being with God in that loving fellowship and the joy of bringing the bride into that love and experiencing it for all eternity. So what Paul is supplying that's missing in the afflictions of Christ, is that Christ is not here to personally communicate it anymore. So through Paul's ministry, what happens? He is communicating, he is embodying the love of Christ because he's rejoicing in the love of God and he's rejoicing in expressing that love to Christ's bride as the friend of the bridegroom whose job is to bring the bride to the groom. Look again at John 15, we'll see something about this love and joy commingled together that we're to have. John 15, Jesus first, referring to himself in relationship to God, he would say in verse 9 of John 15, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue, stay in my love. Now, in this chapter, in the next chapter, he's going to tell them some of the things that will threaten staying in his love. It's going to be the hatred of the world. It's going to be the suffering that will come from loving one another. Marvel not if the world hate you. You know that it hated me first. And that is right in connection with, this is my commandment that you love one another. It's going to produce hatred. So, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Stay, remain, continue, persevere in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. 
These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Now what is the joy of Christ and how does it come to fullness? Well, he tells us his joy is in the Father's love. I've been abiding in my Father's love and abiding in the delight of that love produces commandment-keeping obedience. It'll work the same for you, Jesus says. If you abide in my love, if you rest in my love, if you relate to my love like that, it's going to produce out of your life commandments. Now what is, what are all the commandments condensed down to in the Bible? If we could take one passage, one commandment, and condense all the other commandments and sum it up in one command, what would it be? Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Our joy in the love of God does not come to completeness until we express it to one another. That's why you find the two great commands connected in the Bible. Because you can't have one without the other. You can't love one another without the love of God. And if we have the love of God, what is that producing? Love to one another. So Jesus is saying, the joy that I have in God's love that produces joy is when that love of God my Father goes out to you, the sinner, in redemption and all that Christ is for us. Now, if Christ's joy is made full in us, what happens? We rest in the Father's love and the Son's love and we abide in it And it starts to trickle out of our lives the summation of all commandments, which is what? Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So in suffering and in affliction, which is the context of John 15 and 16 and what Paul is talking about, when the love of God the Father is delighting our souls, and then it's working itself out in loving one another, even in affliction, The love of Christ is embodied and He is incarnate. And we are supplying that which is missing in His afflictions is that He is not here personally so that people could see His love and His joy in His commandment-keeping obedience that now the church is to fill up. Not just Paul's ministry, The church is to love one another. The church is to love each other even in difficulty and affliction. You can see this come together in 1 Peter 1.22, the verse we looked at in the one anothering passages where Peter says, Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, genuine real love, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now verse 22 comes in a context where Peter's used the word grief or heaviness, trial or suffering. And in that context, what does he say? Love one another with a pure heart. Now where's the joy in love in 1 Peter? It's in verse 9. Whom having not seen you love, and whom now, Though you see Him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, 
receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. He's not here, but you love Him. You've never seen Him bodily, but you believe Him and you rejoice in that love. And then Peter says what? Now love one another in your grief, in your trial, in your afflictions. Because God is doing something in it, isn't He? He's he's strengthening us. He's grounding us. He's settling us. He's revealing to us. He's correcting us. He's loving us. He's drawing us so that we may fulfill the law. Which is what? Love God and love your neighbor. Precisely because Christ has fulfilled it on our behalf. Beloved, You've been called to ministry in the body in a different capacity than Paul so that we may supply what is missing in the afflictions of Christ and we together may embody the love of Jesus Christ to a world that is suffering, that is angry, that is full of hatred, that is confused, that's blind, that's in darkness, but you've been brought into the light translated into the kingdom of His dear Son, delivered from the power of darkness. Your eyes have been opened so that now you may see Christ and love Him and embody that love in what? Your ministry to one another. Your service to one another. How is your ministry, in a general sense, going to one another? Have you been distracted by your trials? Have you been moved by them? Or have you been grounded and settled in the love of God coming to you as a father so that it's producing more love? And together, we embody the love of Christ by grace. That's the first reason. Number two. Verse 25. Whereof I am made a minister for that reason, one. Now here's number two. According to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to His saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So number two, Paul says, all of this that has been given to him by God is to fulfill the word of God. That's the second reason. Everything we just read is aiming toward Paul bringing into execution, carrying out this dispensation, whatever it is, to fulfill the Word of God. So let's look at some of these words, and then we'll see how it applies to us. Dispensation means management of a household or stewardship. So Paul has been given a stewardship of God by grace. It was given to him for the sake of the church. Now, the basic function of a steward is to take all available resources given to him by the master, he doesn't own them, and then to dispense them according to the master's bidding. Paul has been given the word of God, the mystery, and his job is to dispense the mystery, to spread the mystery in a faithful way in the household called the church. That's what he's doing it for. This dispensation of God, he defines in verse 26, to fulfill is the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations. The mystery here, again, is not the kind of mystery which can never be figured out, no matter how hard you try. 
The mystery means something, as Paul says, that was hidden in ages past. It was concealed. God had not yet revealed it. Ages is epochs, eras, periods of time, periods defined by significant events. We could say there was the age from Adam to Moses, the Mosaic age from Moses to Christ, and the concurrent ages of the empires and the kings of the earth in that day, which were interacting with the Israelite nation during that time. All that brought to a close, all that to the saints of old was concealed, this mystery. But Paul says, now it's been made manifest. To whom? Now. Now is made manifest to His saints. It's been revealed, it's been disclosed now to you. Whatever Christian on the planet who has the least knowledge of the Bible, if they're a true believer, has more knowledge than Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets of the Old Testament because it's been revealed God's purpose. Now, the world talks a lot about privilege these days, but you really have a privilege that's genuine and it's from God. It was His purpose in Christ Jesus, eternal purpose, Ephesians 3, to now make it manifest to you. Paul's ministry, this dispensation, stewardship, is to receive this mystery from God by revelation, Ephesians 3, 1-4. through It was not revealed in the past, but now it's been revealed to His holy prophets and apostles. And now Paul wants to fulfill that in dispensing it to everyone in the household for a purpose. What is this mystery? And whom God would make known. Now twice Paul wants to emphasize it's been manifest to His saints and God willed to make it known to the same people, His saints, what is the riches of the glory of the mystery. To the nations, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ among you, Christ with you, Christ in you, Christ over you, Christ under you, Christ beside you, Christ for you. The great privilege of the hope of glory, Jesus Christ with us, in us, empowering us, and the wealth of the riches of this glory. Paul, when he's going to unpack this reality in greater detail in chapter 3 of the book to the Ephesians, you remember he would say the mystery that the Gentiles, nations again, would be fellow heirs, for which prior to this time they were without God and without hope in the world. The nations were without God and without hope in the world. Now to the nations the message is Christ in you the hope of glory. And that includes you, all the non-Jewish world and the nations on the planet. They are fellow heirs of the same body. Not a body for this nationality or for this hobby or for this habit or for this preference. Same body. People who have nothing in common. You can't go to the church and find something in common with someone. There's nothing there among the Jews and Gentiles of any commonality whatsoever. God's purpose, same body. And partakers or sharers of His promise in Christ through the gospel which Paul is bringing. Now Paul says a parallel statement in Ephesians 3.10. Whereof I am made a minister. 
He says the same thing in Colossians 1. So we know we're, we've got parallels here. Whereof I am made a minister according to the grace of God that was given me for you and according to the working of His mighty power. For what purpose? Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I may preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. In Colossians, he says, the riches of the glory of the mystery. Beloved, you are so rich that it can't be counted. It can't be tracked out. It can't be searched. It can't be fathomed. There's no end to it. There's no measurement to the depth of the riches of the glory in Christ that we have. That ought to grip our souls. Has that come, become sort of mundane to you and just sort of like blah? If all the saints of glory assembled together, the host of heaven, the untold numbers on that day, we're surrounding or lining the edges of the rivers of God's pleasure and joy. And simultaneously, we drink together and gulp. And maybe you take your, I don't know, your Stanley mug or whatever it's called, a big thing, and you just guzzle simultaneously together. And then when we stop, we looked at the depth measurement along the side of the river. We would see that instrument that measures the depth of the rivers of pleasure is unmoved. Not a millimeter. That's how rich you are. When you add and subtract to infinity, the answer is infinity. Paul wanted to let people know about the riches of the glory of Christ coming to people who do not deserve this wealth, who shouldn't have this wealth. And it's all a dispensation of the grace of God. Paul says... That's the first reason here in chapter 3 of Ephesians why I made a ministry, a minister, and that's the same as the riches of glory in Colossians 1. But then look at the next one. And my numbers were off. I'm in Ephesians 3, 9 now. So it's 6, 7, 8, and 9 if you're taking notes. Verse 9, he gives the second reason here in, in chapter 3 of Ephesians that parallels with Colossians. He's just doing shorthand Colossians. He's unpacking more. In Ephesians 3. So he says in verse 9, And to make all men see, to be illuminated, to understand what? What is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now you can see the parallels there. It's been hid, the mystery. Jesus created all things. And Colossians 1, he unpacks more of that supremacy of Christ in creation. So what does Paul want men to see? The fellowship of the mystery. What does that mean? Participation. He wants them to be illuminated at God's purpose for your participation in the mystery. Are you participating actively, zealously in this mystery of bringing the Gentiles and the Jews into local assemblies called churches to the intent that now... See, Paul keeps emphasizing the word now in relation to what was hidden in the past. It was not now for them. Now, right here, right now, God has abounded toward you in all wisdom and insight. 
having made known unto you the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, so that you would see the fellowship and participate in the mystery of this fellowship called churches. Are you a participant? I don't mean are you a member. Of course, that's where it's got to start. But you and I can be members on the books with no participation. What is this participation? To the intent that now under the principalities and powers, the angelic hosts in heavenly places might be known. It's communicated by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. We are incarnating Christ. We are communicating to the angelic world and to the world itself something about the multicolored wisdom of God. Manifold can mean multicolored like in a fabric or in a painting of multiple colors. Fabric It's made up of many different threads, different colors, different textures, different thickness. Alone, the thread does not fulfill its purpose. It's just on the spool. No participation. It's just there. It just exists. Until it's interwoven in the body with the other pieces of thread, it begins to form a picture. A fabric of God's wisdom. Are we as a church participating in putting on display to the angelic host the wisdom of God? Or are they like the people that paid the price to get into the concert or the show and walked away saying, what was the point? I'm so disappointed. I wasted my money. Is the angelic host looking at this church saying, we want our money back. These people are isolated. Or do they start to see something about the fabric that God is weaving that puts on display His wisdom? Or take a painter's paint on the palette, the wood palette where the paints are there. They're just paint. As long as the paint is on the palette, as long as it's in the can, it doesn't get on the wall, it's not fulfilling its purpose. It's just paint in a can. But when the painter mixes the palette colors and starts to brush it on the canvas, all the different colors come together to make a beautiful picture of the wisdom of God. This is why Paul was so excited. This is why he was willing to suffer in his afflictions for the sake of the body because he was filling up that which was lacking, communicating God's love and joy in that love. And in this stewardship, he was fulfilling the word of God and telling them about the unsearchable riches of Christ that was to motivate us to participate. You don't lose anything in the service of God. He's given you everything because Christ is in you. The hope of glory. Now that's basically Paul's ministry. And we start to see that's the ministry of the church or a way that we serve. When Paul serves the church, then the church, out of what Paul does, in leaving his word to us, we begin to fulfill the word of God. We begin to execute and to bring into practice this eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. So what that means is you have been assigned a stewardship from God. It's not a part-time stewardship, it's a full-time. God expects us to take this stewardship from God and to use it for His glory in the service of one another. Now Paul will talk about that in the fourth chapter, because chapter 3, this mystery is leading to the participation of the gifts that the ascended Christ, when He ascended on high, led captivity captive. What did He do? He gave gifts to you. 
Peter calls that stewardship in 1 Peter 4.10. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister, there's our word, diakoneo, so you're a minister of sorts, you've received a gift, even so minister the same, that gift, as good stewards, there's your dispensation, your stewardship, what's the household, the church, Minister the same as good stewards of the manifold. There's the palette of God. There's the fabric that's being interwoven through the lives of the people of God as they come together and serve manifold grace of God. Ephesians, it's wisdom. Peter, it's grace. Because part of the display of God's wisdom and the the, the angels are wondering at, they're, they're looking at each other thinking, I don't get why God showed these people any grace at all. They are rebels without a cause. And so they marvel at the fact that Jesus would come, this glorious Creator, the Supreme God, who is infinite and worthy and impeccable and glorious and beautiful and sinless and holy and harmless, would actually take on a body for people that have abused Him by sinning against them as we have. I wonder if they marvel more than we do sometimes. And then Peter says there's two categories of gift. You're either speaking or you're serving. If any man speak, let him speak as of the oracles of God. And that's not just in the official capacity of of being a, a pastor or an apostle or a minister. Because exhortation is the gift in Romans 12, and that's speaking. So we're all called to speak the Word of God, to speak the truth of God. Or if it's serving. And I'd say, that's a pretty general gift that everybody has that empowers us to serve and to minister and to be good stewards of God's grace. A good steward is not going to try to give the gift away. He's not going to put it in the cabinet. It's not going to keep it in the package. A good steward is going to faithfully use it. A good steward is going to use God's grace and minister at every opportunity that they can. A good steward is going to be thankful for the grace given and then take the master's resources because they don't belong to him and then use the resources according to the master's master design that God in all things might be glorified to whom is dominion and power and glory forever. Amen. So, beloved, let us remember that when we see Paul's reason for ministry, when he communicates and fulfills the Word of God, then that brings us to the place and the question, are we participating in the fellowship of this mystery? Are we moving in that direction? Or as one man put it, are we being distracted and moving into oncoming traffic? Because we're not watching the road. We're not keeping our eye on the purpose for which Christ called us. We've moved out, maybe in afflictions, not seeing God's purpose in it, and we've become distracted and we've, we've taken a turn. We're on a dirt road. We're off the main highway. And God this morning is calling you back to the place of His purpose. He's calling us back. Maybe someone's here has drifted from this fellowship, from this participation. 
And God is calling us back to understand the mystery, the riches, the unsearchable riches. Christ is in you. Christ is for you. Christ is with you. For what purpose? So that we may put on display the manifold wisdom of God in our love to one another. See, in the body, someone always needs to be loved. There's a widow who doesn't have a husband who's lonely. Go love that widow. Well, that's going to take some time. Right? There's always someone who's maybe lost a spouse. Maybe they were divorced. Maybe they didn't want to be. We're called to love that person, to help them. Maybe there's a young man that's struggling with sin and distracted with the world. He's being pulled out into the world. You're called on to love that person. Maybe there's a mother who's struggling with her children. Struggling. Doesn't know where to turn. Love that person. When the body begins to interact and to be the paint on the brush and the instrument in the hands of God, beautiful things start happening. Not through a few people. Not just through those dedicated people. Not just the people willing to show up. The whole body is fitly joined together when the whole body is holding on to the head. Do you have hold of the head? If you do, it will work itself out little by little through joints and bands where people are coming back to the focus, the sharp focus of God's manifold wisdom and we're now incarnating Christ. What's in it for me? Love and joy empowering that service. May God help us to grow into more of that kind of church. I think you are that kind of church. But some of us need growth. All of us need some growth. Some of us need to come back so that together, we by grace, can put on display something that we cannot put on display without Jesus Christ. So that gets us through two points. Next Sunday, we'll look at the last two. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your unsearchable riches that you have bestowed freely on sinners. Lord, Paul bent over backwards in his prayer life to help the church understand what they had. He would say, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what this hope is, what the riches are, and what the power is available to us. He would pray that we would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power in being long-suffering and patient with joyfulness. He would pray that we would be filled with all the wisdom and spiritual understanding of God's will. Why? So that we would understand this participation and be filled in such a way that we would be part of what you were doing on the planet and in the world rather than being distracted from it. Lord, we just confess our sins as a body that we have been distracted and we are so easily distracted by our phones, by the internet, by the smallest of things, we confess it. And Lord, we ask for your help and your grace so that we could see and understand and know in such a way that we would make movement this week in service and that I and this church would 
not make excuses that we have done in the past as to why we can't, why it's too hard, why it won't work. And when all the while, sometimes it's because there are things more important to us on our schedule. Lord, we just confess that. We all know it's true of ourselves. We freely confess it, and we ask your forgiveness, and then we ask for empowerment to make a difference in this next week, that we would start to walk maybe more than we have, or maybe for the first time, we would walk in your love in such a way that the joy we experience would produce more love to one another for the glory and honor of your matchless name. We ask you all this in Jesus' name.